Welcome to Food Forward, Nourishing the World, with your host, Alan Weiner. Over the next hour, you'll explore the innovative and ever-evolving solutions in everyone's favorite topic, food. Now, here's your host, Alan. Welcome to Food Forward, Nourishing the World. We are live from the Sunshine State. This is your weekly dive into the future of what's on our plates. Every week, we slice through the latest food trends, simmer down complex nutritional information, and serve you a hearty helping of insights. From farm to fork, we're exploring how what we eat shapes our health, planet, and future. So, tighten your apron strings and sharpen your knives. It's time to feast on ideas that matter, right here on Food Forward, Nourishing the World. Now, don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, and go to our website, www.foodforwardradio.com. Let's get started with the show. Welcome to Food Forward, Nourishing the World. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. Today, we're thrilled to have Meg Bluth, who is Senior Director of Insights from the Brightfield Group a company renowned for their in-depth market research and data-driven insights in the cannabis, CBD, and wellness industries. Meg's expertise and contributions have been instrumental in shaping our understanding of these rapidly evolving markets. Her work at the Brightfield Group involves analyzing complex trends, consumer behaviors, and regulatory landscape, providing invaluable business intelligence to businesses and policymakers alike. Join us as we welcome Meg Bluth to the show. Welcome, Meg. Thanks, Ellen. Nice to be here. Oh, great. So listen, we're here to talk about some specific research that you did that caught my eye. And as somebody who was in the research business for a long time, let's put it that way, um, when I see something that pops out at me, I really want to know more. So the Brightfield Group did some research on five things that shoppers look for on labels at the grocery store, correct? Yes, so we are actually tracking um, quarterly a lot of behaviors that people are doing within the wellness and health industry. And one of the questions that we're asking in this quarterly tracking is about the types of ingredients that people are looking for in their food. And so we're able to see what those ingredients are, what are some of those top um, ingredients? Um, sorry. sorry. Go ahead. I was going to go through the five ingredients and then um, okay. kind of circle back, okay? Okay. All right. So we have sugar, refined sugar, um, what's known as real ingredients, and we'll get back to that, high fructose corn syrup, artificial sweeteners, and quote-unquote all natural, which leads me to the question as somebody who's done research um, how do are, are people given definitions or are they left to their own devices to interpret what they mean by real ingredients? Yeah, we are not giving them definitions of what this is. These are really the types of claims that ingredients will have on packages and whether or not those are kind of catching their eye or they're looking for that. And so, you know, it's they're open to their interpretation when it comes to something, quote unquote, you know, made with real food ingredients. Um, But it is interesting to kind of see how that has held steady as something that people are definitely saying, I'm looking for that kind of indication that this food has real food ingredients. 
Interesting. And, and just on the labels themselves, have you noticed that labels have changed to become more explanatory over the course of your research? I think that the labels have become more explanatory in ways like, um, you know, being able to say something is all natural. Um, that's something that as time has gone on, we've seen that, you know, people are wanting more specifics than that. Um, that has sort of fallen a bit out of favor and more towards, I want to make sure that there's not a lot of added sugars or there's no preservatives. And so saying all natural is kind of more generic and doesn't really tell them enough. So we've definitely seen focus moving away from not just consumers kind of wanting all natural, but manufacturers realizing that's not enough. Mm. Um, they need to be more specific about what it is that is neutral and what is it that these people are looking for in food. So um, before we talk about how the, how the uh, preferences have changed, is there a preference that surprised you either by being listed or not listed? I would say I was surprised by no artificial sweeteners. Not that it's listed, but essentially who's interested in it and who's really looking for it. I, you know, have spent a lot of my career in the beverage world and, you know, working on artificial sweeteners and generally understanding that. And I had more of a thought that younger people were really concerned about artificial sweeteners but the way we've been tracking the last two years, it really is sort of boomers that care a lot more about artificial sweeteners and are really kind of more worried about them. And it's interesting that some of the younger consumers, although they want things that are all natural, they've kind of grown up with these natural or these artificial sweeteners in their life. Mm -hmm. um, their Gen X parents and things like that have, were serving them foods and beverages with that in there. So they kind of get a little bit more of a pass with them. So I think that's what's been interesting, just to really dig into the demographics of that kind of um, feeling around artificial sweeteners. Well, I appreciate you walking into my next question. <laughs> so in terms of the demographic breakdown on these preferences, yeah, things like income level, region, educational background, how big a role do those elements play in this research? Oh, you know, they, they definitely play a huge role. So we've seen a lot of differences across demographics. And some of the key demographics you really hit on here, you know, um, income and education have been a real game changers in sort of how we look at this data and, and where we see things sort of popping. Um, if we look at some of the highest income groups, people making above 100,000 in their home, um, we can see that they are essentially looking for all of those top five claims, all natural, made with food, real food, no sugar, no added sugar, that is, no artificial sweeteners they're really over-indexing on all of those things. And when we look at lower income consumers, consumers kind of in that, you know, under $50,000 or less coming into the home, they're actually 1.3 times more likely to say that they're actually looking for none of these. So there is a certain income level. There is some changes and some decisions that they're making for their family based on some of the income that's coming in. And they don't really have perhaps the luxury to be as choosy with some of the things that they're looking for. And we also see you know, very much connected in terms of education levels. So we can see consumers that have a high school diploma or less education are significantly less likely to be looking for some of the more technical ingredient claims like free from artificial flavors, free from artificial preservatives and things like non-GMOs. And so, you know, we can certainly see that this is potentially something those are a little bit more technical. They need a little bit more understanding of sort of what those things mean 
Um, and so we can see that that could be what's driving that as well. We also see a few patterns in region, which I think are interesting. You know, we've got our Western and our Northeastern states that are really, you know, always have been very focused on organics. But we also see the West is skewing a little bit more towards non-GMOs and looking for non-high uh, fructose corn syrup claims. While the Midwest, my people, the land of cheese and meat raffles, um, we're not really overly focused on claims. In fact, they're more likely to say that they're looking for none of them if they're in the Midwest. So, you know, definitely a lot of really interesting preferences as you kind of think through all the different ways you can demographically break this kind of data up. So when you talk about people like you just did from the Midwest and people from a lower income level, Mm-hmm. Do they look at the label at all? Or, or is there something that would totally turn them off or they're just looking at the label for curiosity? You know, it's hard to say. You know, this is not something we specifically ask them, um, but they're telling us, you know, I'm, I'm generally trying to eat well, but I'm not searching out those specific claims. And so maybe they certainly have ideas of what they were looking for and maybe they're using more fresh foods and things like that. And so there aren't labels involved. It's a bit hard to say, but um, we don't know exactly if they're looking at the labels, but they tell us in this situation, they're not looking specifically for some of those things. Hmm. Does does the word vegan on a label pop up in any of your research? Um, we don't ask on the label um, if they're looking for vegan. We do ask if they're in a, um, in a vegan diet. Um, so we certainly know kind of how many people are on a vegan diet. We do ask questions about, you know, more plant forward, you know, not having dairy, not having meat, uh, plant-based foods, things like that. But we don't specifically dig too far into, you know, vegan label claims. Mm. So let's talk about, you know, the change in preferences. What's been the biggest change that you've noticed over the past few years? And what do you think is driving the change? Yeah, I think the the past two years where we've seen rise, because um, we've been doing this about um, two and a half years now with this uh, wellness survey at Byfield Group, the two that we've seen growing in terms of these sort of ingredient areas is no sugar added, um, which we've seen that kind of go up about 3% in the last two years, and then no artificial sweeteners also going up about that much in the last two years. And to me, those are areas that go kind of one level under that um, all natural, where we're seeing them kind of say, ah, that's sort of holding steady. It's always been very strong, but this gives you that descriptive level underneath of what does that kind of mean? It means that you're not putting artificial sweeteners and you're not adding sugar to something that is already sweet, perhaps. Mm. And so those are two that we've really seen on the rise. You know, when, when I'm imagining a food label, you know, I think of like two parts to the label. You know, there's the ingredients, and then above it is, you know, the the FDA or uh, health issues like amount of fat, carbs, et cetera, et cetera. Do you ask any questions about that or do you notice people even looking at that? We do. We have another area that asks specifically about some of the things they're looking for in their foods, like low in carbs, low in sugar, low in fats, high in protein. Um, and so those are generally less about claims and more about, you know, some of the ways that they're making decisions about food. Mm-hmm. And we certainly see, you know, the same kind of thing, low sugar coming towards the top, high protein is, is uh, gaining more in popularity as well as we see some high protein diets that have focus on kind of that 30G, getting your 120 or so grams of protein in a day. 
Um, so we certainly see those continue to be on the rise. Hmm. Well, you've walked into another question. So uh, if I'm a consumer that has a health concern, yeah. does that make me more uh, likely to look at and trust a food label? I think, you know, trust is a different question. Um, I think it does make you more likely to look at a food label. Um, but we also know, you know, people in the U.S., we, we don't always do what we should for our health. And so we're seeing about 80% of consumers in our survey say that they in some way are focused on health and wellness. So we have a segment that's about 20% that really isn't that focused. They're, they're just kind of doing the basics to get by from a health perspective. And that group can have a lot of conditions and does have a lot of conditions and doesn't seem to be doing a lot of their behaviors towards that. Um, but that being said, if I look and I kind of dig into the data and say, okay, if someone has diabetes, do I see them more or less looking at things that say no added sugar or looking for low sugar in their ingredients and labels? And I do. I definitely see that like a significant increase among those diabetic consumers. But I also see that 33% of people who have diabetes tell me, I don't actually look for no added sugar or I don't really look for low sugar on my labels. And so to me, that's really interesting because they're aware they have diabetes. Sometimes we see that there's an educational level of difference within the diabetes, not fully understanding perhaps some of the, um, the dangers with diabetes or maybe have access to consistent health care. Um, and we also see some ability that or it could be sort of tied to income where they don't necessarily have the ability to make some of the healthier food choices or the restricted incomes and limited access to some fresh foods. So there's a lot of sort of like co-morbidities or co-instances um, of things that are sort of happening in there. Um, so that being said, people who have these diseases do tend to be more aware, but there is a really alarming amount of people who are just either not capable or not really making that first foot forward and some things that we know they should be doing for some of the diseases that they have. Now that's interesting. Me as a type one diabetic and consumer, I look at carbs first. Mm. I look at carbs and then fiber. So I then look at net carbs. Yeah. I guess I do look at sugar, but I generally, you know, uh, instinctively know not to eat something that has a lot of sugar, like, you know, cookies, cake, etc. Interesting. Yeah. Um, my last question has to do with terminology. Something like all natural. So there's really no definition of all natural. Um, yeah. how, how do you kind of think that the consumer perceives all natural to be? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, when I dug in a little further into all natural, I saw an interesting understanding or at least interest in all natural on a label for younger and older consumers. Younger consumers, the Gen Xers, the millennials, were more likely to say that I'm looking for all natural, while older consumers um, seem to want more specifics. And so I think all natural is so nebulous and undescripted that it's kind of fallen out of favor with more savvy consumers, people who are really have been consumers for a long time with food. They're really making those decisions. And as these younger consumers come of age, they too will be looking for more specifics to kind of back up that claim of all natural. And as a result, I think that consumer preferences are going to move towards wanting more than that blanket statement. And it's going to force manufacturers to really follow suit there. Definitely. I love talking research with somebody who is just so skilled at market research. 
But unfortunately, we've run out of time. So I'd like to thank Meg Bluth, who is Senior Director of Insights at the Brightfield Group. I hope to have her on again to talk about other trends as well. We will be back to Food Forward, Nourishing the World after these messages. From the vivid imagination of acclaimed author Alan Weiner comes a mystery series that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Meet Max Rosen, a spirited young newspaper reporter who finds himself entangled in a web of suspense, secrets, and danger. In what goes up, Rosen's instincts lead him to a mystery that soars beyond expectations. This journey continues in Tickle Takedown, where the stakes get higher, the mysteries deeper. And just when you think you have him figured out, Max evolves a nose job, taking us into the mature and thrilling world of investigative journalism. Alan Weiner crafts a world filled with adventure, where every clue counts, every lead matters, and every page turns faster than the last. Dive into the Max Rosen Mysteries series today. Available now on Amazon.com. Max Rosen Mysteries, where intrigue and adventure await at the turn of every page. Brought to you by Alan Weiner, writing stories that take you on a journey, one mystery at a time. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Food Forward, Nourishing the World. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. Today, we are truly honored to host Dr. Deb Kennedy, a trailblazer in the field of culinary medicine. Dr. Kennedy has distinguished herself through her innovative approach to health and nutrition, seamlessly blending the art of cooking with the science of medicine. Her work has not only transformed our understanding of food's role in health and wellness, but also inspired countless individuals to embrace a healthier lifestyle through informed dietary choices. With a rich background in both clinical practice and culinary arts, Dr. Kennedy stands at the forefront of this exciting and evolving field. Today, we will delve into her journey, insights, and the impact of her pioneering work in culinary medicine. Welcome, Dr. Deb. Thank you, Alan. Uh, that was a wonderful introduction. <laughs> I well, appreciate it. Oh, I'm no so problem. happy to be here with you today. So before we start with some questions, I'm going to throw you a curveball. What did you have for dinner last night? Oh, I am so glad you asked that question because I was really hungry and I I am not a vegan or a vegetarian, but I do follow what's called the protein flip, which is little bits of meat protein, but mostly vegetables. So I did a riff on shepherd's pie. So I created this most amazing shepherd's pie. So it started with probably with two cups of chopped very finely onions and squash and sweet potato. And I sauteed that 
and I put in some broth, a little bit of Worcestershire sauce, and a little bit, like two tablespoons of this incredible barbecue sauce from Prohibition Pig in Vermont, which is incredible. And then I sauteed a little bit of lamb. There was very little lamb in the whole dish. And it made, I want to say like three quarts, a three quart saucepan. And on the top, I steamed cauliflower, sweet potato, and potato and made a mashed potato. And that was the best, the best um, shepherd's pie I've ever had in my life. And it probably had one-tenth meat and nine-tenths vegetables. And that's what I want to show people, that you decide how far down the plant-forward path you want to go, but it's delicious. <laughs> it sounds fantastic. It's interesting. So I, two things. One is um, I saw a video where Jamie Oliver makes a totally vegan shepherd's pie, and it's wonderful. Now, the twist that I do when it comes to mashed potatoes, and I don't want this to be about me, um, is I mash together a small amount of potatoes, but celery root. And I mash them and I put in a little bit of plant-based milk and plant-based butter and some pretty high quality plant-based cheese. And I would use that on top or I use it as a side dish. Um, But I I get where you're coming from. You know, you can have... People, people think that this is this can be very boring. I think it's incredibly fun and creative, but this is not about that. So let's get down to some things that I think everybody will be interested in. You've dedicated your career to culinary medicine. Can you explain what exactly culinary medicine is and why it's important? I will. And there are several definitions of culinary medicine. And in this work that I did, we came up with uh, a really fresh definition that really gets to the heart of the matter. Culinary medicine is about empowering the person. And so it really is a skill-building, person-centered approach that teaches individuals how to translate culinary, clinical nutrition recommendations into culinary skills. So basically, in a nutshell, what do you need to learn to do in the kitchen and at the store to to one eat more vegetables eat more whole grains if your doctor tells you to eat less fat what is that how do you translate that in the kitchen and at the store that's where people get lost and that's what culinary medicine does it fills that gap takes the information and translates that into skill building so that people can actually enjoy the diet that they are being advised to follow. You know, I I want your take on this point. It's been my experience and maybe I don't go to the right doctors, but doctors know very little about diet. (laughs) Um, So very little, Alan. So very, very little. and, And how do we get around that? Well, there are some movements in trying to teach them more nutrition. But I've got a really great background in that I started in the field of holistic medicine, which was called complementary alternative medicine. And that was in the early 90s. And what happened was the doctors started picketing because they didn't like complementary alternative medicine. And then they decided, I want to be the one to do acupuncture. I want to be the one to do herbs. And they quickly found out within about five to seven years, I don't have the time to do acupuncture and I don't have the time to do herbs. But what it did do was give them the experience how valuable 
these um, modalities were. And I see the same. So the long goal, yep, the long goal, Alan, is yes, let's teach more doctors about nutrition and culinary medicine does that. But in the meantime, the leaders in this field are not the clinicians. The clinicians need to refer a patient to somebody who really understands culinary medicine. And so that is your chefs and your nutritionists who also have a background in cooking. Interesting. So your latest project is the Food Coach Academy. Tell us more about that and, and how does it help people improve their health through food? Right. So the Food Coach Academy is exactly what my 35 years of experience has come to because I'm also certified in value-based medicine. And what I see missing in the world of preventive medicine, which has a lot to do with nutrition, is that there is nobody in that space to do the skill building. So for instance, if I told you to watch a video of how to drive a car, and then you came back and you couldn't drive a car, and I'm like, Alan, why aren't you driving the car? Well, no one showed you how to drive the car, right? And so these food coaches take the information that doctors or dietitians or naturopaths has told their client is best for their health, and then they interact as a coach with that person and teach them how to cook, how to plan meals, and how to shop. I kind of say it's like a health coach ran into a chef training, both of them in the same. So it will help them improve their health through food because they're going to want to eat it, right? Mm -hmm. Because they are taught how to make delicious, healthy food. So if I wanted to be a food coach, uh, how do I get involved in this project? Well, it's actually launching January 3rd, 2024, which we're really excited about. Um, if you go to my website, which is drdebkennedy.com, you'll see that there's links there. And the Food Coach Academy is done in partnership with Ruby, R-O-U-X-B-E, which is the number one online culinary school. And you can also find it there as well. And when you're completed the course, and I assume this is all online, um, yes. do you get a, a degree? I mean, what, what do you take away from it? Yes, you actually get a certification. So what I've been doing is following what's happening in the medical system. And what we see is that the docs don't have the time to really engage in preventive medicine. And what I've seen happen in the last 12 years specifically is that then the nurses took over and then the nurses got really busy. And there's this saying called, you work at the top of your license. So they don't want doctors doing anything that nurses can do. And nurses don't want to be doing anything that a dietitian can be doing, et cetera, et cetera. And then what popped up are these health coaches and these health coaches and community healthcare workers are now being trained and established as the foundational workforce in order to create this preventative medicine field and empower them. And so health coaches, and the reason I'm talking about health coaches is because there now is a national certification and the same will happen for food coaches as well. That will come. It's not established right yet, but if you follow the lead of the health coaches, 
the ultimate goal of the certification in food coaching is to have it reimbursed by insurance mm-hmm. because I want everybody to be able to do this. I want to reach the end of the end of the road, as we like to say in preventive medicine. There's a leader in every community and whether that's in a church or in a community center. And I want to train them how to be a food coach so that they go into their communities where they're well known and respected and change people's lives through food. So when I worked in tech, I always believed that solutions have to have a balance of art and science. Now, in your life, you have a PhD in nutrition, but you're also a chef. So how do you balance the two to really do the job that you do? So I'm a scientist through and through, but I was born as a chef. (laughs) So I started cooking at the age of four, and I really, really enjoyed it. And so the science is the basis of which all of this emerges from. Let's look at it as the soil. So for the culinary medicine textbook, which then is what is used in the Food Coach Academy, I worked with 40 plus nutrition scientists from around the world. And I also worked with a dozen chefs. So the the science was, okay, chefs, well, nutritionists first, you tell me, what is it we need to know about fruit. And so they'd come up with the recommendations. It's not rocket science there, but you come up with the recommendations. Then I would hand it over to the chefs and go, chefs, how do I translate that into culinary arts? How do I translate that? And so it's this interchange. And that, if I look back, it's a really good question that you ask, Alan, because when I look back at my days of holistic medicine, I was often asked that question. How do you traverse both the Western medicine and the holistic medicine. And so I had training from 30 years ago, how to have my feet in two worlds and be able to walk that line where I could connect with people on both sides and hope to bring them together. So when you say that you worked with with a dozen or so chefs, how did you find these chefs? Because not every chef is really equipped to translate the the recommendations into something that not only meets those recommendations but as as i watched in your video on taste tastes you know appealing yes so i've been in this field for a very long time right so i had made connections with a lot of chefs and a lot of chefs that were in what's considered integrative medicine. Now, that's just another word for holistic medicine, which was another word for complementary medicine. So those that kind of were on the fringe and I knew who they were and I had a really great network um, with people that were in really distinguished roles and saying, okay, who do you know? And this just just blossomed. It was meant to be. Interesting. I want to go back to the textbook that you talked about, the culinary medicine textbook. What are what are the key principles that you would want a reader to take away the high level stuff? Right. So the goal was to establish the culinary competencies for nutrition recommendations and the principles that arose out of that was to really to be able to empower others by teaching these cooking skills. So it's to help people fall in love with food again, right? We're born, we have blissful moments, 
um, when we're at, when we're being bottle fed or breastfed, and then our life takes over. And a lot of us develop this love-hate relationship with food. My body is not what I like it to be, or I don't get that job because I'm overweight, et cetera, et cetera. And food becomes the enemy. So it's really about opening a space so that people can reconnect with food. And the second one is that the science isn't the end of the road. It's actually the beginning of the road, right? So it leads the way to creating delicious, healthy meals, and food coaches learn how to make those healthy meals. And this is based on what I've been studying for the last 15 years, which is a modular approach. So if I asked you to follow a healthy diet, what I'm really asking is that you follow about 150 to 170 nutrition recommendations at the same time while you make your 220 food decisions at once. And so there's way too much information that we're asking people, and they tend to implode. So I studied how people learn and how they make behavior change. And they do it in one discrete element at a time. So if you look at elementary school, they're learning history and then they go to a class and they're learning math. So I took those 160 recommendations and broke them up into 10 food recommendations, if you call it subjects. So fruit's a different subject than vegetables, which is a different subject than whole grains. And you just focus on one of those. Give people as much time as they need to become successful in one of these modules. And I study this in elementary schools and boy, did it ever work. So I don't care what your diet looks like right now. Let's just focus on, what would you like to focus on? Vegetables this month? Okay, and let's just focus on that. So this modular approach is the scientific basis for what I'm what is done in the Food Coach Academy. And a really important, important piece is to, and this is what I think is missing in this new food is medicine movement, which is a little different. Um, and I'll I can talk about that more if you want me to, but sure. yeah. um in order to honor an individual's palate, because no two of us taste the same, right? And to honor their wallet and their cultural traditions, we need to bring culinary skills into this food as medicine movement, which to date is is not present. Um, they're talking about sending medical meals to individuals who have certain diseases for a certain amount of time, and then they take it away. And to me, that's not equitable, nor is it diverse or inclusive because, and it's not fair. You can't just go in and give people food and then come back and expect them to, what do you expect them to do when it's all done? You haven't taught them how to cook and how to continue to cook a diabetes-friendly meal or a cardiovascular health um, meal. So with the Food Coach Academy, I specifically didn't focus on all these recipes. There are a bazillion and two out there. What I did focus on is what's called a build a meal. So if you want to build a, let's just say build a salad, you pick your greens, you pick your protein source, you pick your raw vegetables and you pick your dressing. That way, I'm not asking someone to run out and get something new. They use what they have, what they like, and they make that salad based on those principles. And that is really, um, a way to honor an individual who they are everywhere. So, so you, those you, are the principles. Yeah, so you've hit upon one of my pet peeves on these um, meal services, like, mm -hmm. you know, Blue Apron, et cetera, et cetera, is that 
I think they teach people to be lazy. Um, and I think that you're better off teaching people the skills that you talk about because then if they want to order a, a meal from one of these services, um, they're able to kind of maybe customize it somehow because they have the skill to do that. Am I barking up the wrong tree here? No, no, I get what you're saying. And I say in that situation that when you look at the science, taste leads away. So let's just say that they're actually having experiences where they get to put something together uh, and they see that it tastes really good. Well, then I've got them, right? But it shouldn't end there. It, there. There should be a culinary skill building program behind these meal services to individuals. Because when, and I get what you're saying, and as a nutritionist for many, many years, I always say it depends who I'm talking to, my answer. And what I mean by that is, I always give this example. If I'm talking to one person, I'm able to give a more um, specific recommendation versus if I'm talking to a group of individuals, right? So individuals have different palates and some of them will not care about cooking. And as long as they're eating the food, they've taken that one step. That's the one step they decided, but they should have the opportunity to be able to take the next step. So I kind of agree with you, but I do think there is some positives there, but it's what the food is medicine movement is going to be doing too, is sending people food. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, and it, it makes me angry. <laughs> not I, they do need the food, but that's just not where it should start nor stop. Well, the problem with that from a from a business standpoint is that the the food as a subscription service, you know, creates an ongoing stream of revenue for the company. Yes. The, the teaching behind it does not, unless they can exactly. figure out some way to do that. So right. let, let's talk about the future a little bit. Okay. Um, what's on the horizon um, that we can expect to see that's exciting in the next year or two? Well, what you're going to see, you're going to see a tribe of food coaches that are out there in areas that are teaching individuals how to transform um, the dietary recommendations into delicious meals. You're also going to be seeing a lot of lot more. It's not, um, about the microbiome, right? So the microbiome is what are the bacteria and the, all these nice little bugs in our intestines, which actually have more genetic uh, input than we do. <laughs> they have, you know, when you when you look at it that way, and really your gut determines your health. And so we're going to see more and more of that coming down the pike. And with this new food is medicine movement, which was really sparked by the Biden Harris administration to end hunger, which I applaud, applaud, applaud. I am hoping that culinary medicine is able to be integrated and folded into that movement. Because if it isn't, I can tell you with my 35, 40 years of experience, it will not be equitable, diverse, or inclusive. And that would be a big shame. I can't believe it, but we are out of time. I would love, love, love to have you back and talk more about some of the programs you're working on, as well as your background, because I think it's fascinating how you kind of blended your background in food and nutrition and health together but we're gonna to have to save that for another time i would um, love to tell you about my background and as a teaser i was given two weeks to live in my 20s here i am here wow. i am 30 40 years later 
Let's oh. talk about it, Alan. I would love to join you again. This has been a pleasure. Listen, one more thing. Uh, let's give people the uh, the information they need to learn more about your online cooking school, your book, etc. So they can either, I'm going to give them my email address, right? So culinaryrehab at gmail.com. So that's culinaryrehab at gmail.com. Or you go to drdebkennedy.com, which is D-R-D-E-B kennedy.com. So either one of those, drdebkennedy.com or culinaryrehab at gmail.com. Yes, those are the, <laughs> thank you for asking that. I always forget that part. No, no, we, we want to make sure people can find out more. Well, again, I'd like to thank Dr. Deb Kennedy of being our guest on Food Forward Nourishing the World. I look forward to having her back and we will be back to the show after these messages. From the vivid imagination of acclaimed author Alan Weiner comes a mystery series that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Meet Max Rosen, a spirited young newspaper reporter who finds himself entangled in a web of suspense, secrets, and danger. In what goes up, Rosen's instincts lead him to a mystery that soars beyond expectations. This journey continues in Tickle Takedown, where the stakes get higher, the mysteries deeper. And just when you think you have him figured out, Max evolves a nose job, taking us into the mature and thrilling world of investigative journalism. Alan Weiner crafts a world filled with adventure, where every clue counts, every lead matters, and every page turns faster than the last. Dive into the Max Rosen Mysteries series today. Available now on Amazon.com. Max Rosen Mysteries, where intrigue and adventure await at the turn of every page. Brought to you by Alan Weiner, writing stories that take you on a journey, one mystery at a time. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Food Forward, Nourishing the World. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. I'd like to thank Meg Bluth of the Brightfield Group who discussed research about what people are looking at on their food labels, and Dr. Deb Kennedy, a world's leading expert on food as medicine, which is really an interesting subject. And uh, hopefully we'll get to more of that on one of our future shows. Speaking of future shows, next week, we're in honor of the upcoming Thanksgiving and Christmas slash Hanukkah slash Kwanzaa holidays. We are going to have some guests talk about eating healthy during the holidays. But right now, I wanted to kind of tease things with something that is particular to people, well, like me, who are vegan, who get invited to um, parties, people's houses, or even going out to restaurants with groups of people and making sure that you're able to uh, keep to your diet when you're out of your house. I've often said that I was 
everybody's worst dinner guest because not only am I vegan, I have some very peculiar food allergies, but let's not go into that. So here are some things that you can do if you're a vegan or if you have specific food allergies and you still want to enjoy um, yourself when you go out. And just before I even kind of get into the list, I had someone once tell me in a social situation, it's really not about the food. It's about the people that you're with. That said, I've been in situations where everybody around me is eating and there's nothing um, for my vegan or allergy diet to eat. And people look at you kind of funny, like, you know, why isn't this person eating? So let's go over some of these, these suggestions. Number one, inquire in advance. Um, if you're hosting, ask guests about any allergies or dietary preferences well before the event. This gives you time to plan accordingly. A side note there, um, if you tell someone, hey, I'm vegan, I suggest that you kind of add a little bit of color to that. Uh, my wife and I recently had a situation where we were someone's guest for lunch and they knew we were vegan, but they were preparing eggs, not knowing that eggs are from chickens and chickens are, you know, not vegan. So um, you may need to explain to people a little bit about what your diet is. So labeled dishes. So clearly labeled dishes that contain common allergens like nuts, dairy, or gluten. This helps guests avoid foods that might trigger an allergic reaction. Now, this is particularly important if you're having a potluck or you're at somebody's house and they ask you to bring a, a, a dish. So, you know, putting a list as to what's on there um, is very, very helpful. Offer variety. Uh, prepare a variety of dishes to cater to different tastes and dietary restrictions. Include vegan, gluten-free, or allergy-free options. So we had a situation where the inverse, where we had uh, folks visiting us from out of town, and they weren't vegan or vegetarian, and um, I actually had to prepare a meat dish, not having prepared one in quite a long time. But, you know, I think it's important if I expect people to honor my vegan diet to kind of make sure that they have what they need to add. So then you have cross-contamination awareness. So be mindful of cross-contamination, especially when preparing food for guests with severe allergies. Use separate utensils and cutting boards for allergen-free cooking. And again, we had this come up, um, you know, pretty recently when um, we were out to lunch and my brother-in-law, who has a shellfish allergy, asked the waitress whether the food, all the food was cooked with the same utensils that were used um, to prepare the shellfish. And they did. So it was really good that he asked. Um, keep your ingredients list. So even if you don't print it out, um, make sure that you have a list of ingredients handy in case somebody asks. Quite frankly, I like, you know, printing up the ingredients in advance and showing them to people if they ask or putting it next to the dish. This next one is a little bit controversial, at least for me. It's called encourage self-catering. So if you have severe allergies or you're a vegan, uh, in some cases, preparing a separate meal for guests with strict dietary restrictions may be the safe, safest option. And that's, you know, uh, the, the self-catering thing to me is, I, I don't know. 
Um, we have had a numerous situations, my wife and I both being vegans, where we've asked what the person was serving and there wasn't anything that we could eat. So th the comment was, well, bring something that you can eat. Well, okay. Yes, I did say that it's not about the food, it's about the people. But I don't know, that somehow for me turns me off when somebody says, um, you know, uh, bring your own food. So then the other thing is consider separate meals. So in some cases, particularly if you like to cook and are skilled at cooking for various different food options, prepare special meals for guests with strict dietary restrictions. If you're going to do this, here's my suggestion. Do it buffet style. So have all the food out, you know, maybe on a counter or on a specific table, have your labels on the food, and that way everybody gets what they want. And people, you know, who are not vegan get to learn that vegan food can actually be quite delicious. So if you give them the option or opportunity to taste something that's vegan, even if they're not, you'll go a long way to helping their education. Um, Communicate with guests. So keep open lines of communication. If a dish contains a potential allergen, make sure to inform guests. I think this is particularly true um, for nuts because nuts are, are, you know, especially tree nuts are a very dangerous allergy. I think that making sure um, that people know that a particular meal has nuts in it is very, very important, no matter whether people ask you in advance or not. The last thing is be prepared. So uh, this, is, this is a tough one. So have an emergency plan in case of an allergic reaction, including knowledge of the nearest medical facility and having medications like antihistamines or an epi auto injector if prescribed. So I don't know. Um, Having one, I think the issue with this, and antihistamines uh, really do a good job. Um, if you've ever watched the movie Hitch, this is a really weird aside. There's a scene where um, Will Smith winds up eating shellfish and he's allergic to it. And he winds up going into a pharmacy and drinking bottles of Benadryl to you know, lessen the allergy. So I think having an antihistamine like Benadryl on hand is one thing. Having an EpiPen on the other hand, I'm not so sure about that. So um, those are some pieces of advice. And remember, next week, we're going to kind of go into more detail uh, about things related to the holidays. We have some special guests to talk about that. And we have more to talk about today. So stay tuned. We'll be back after these messages. From the vivid imagination of acclaimed author Alan Weiner comes a mystery series that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Meet Max Rosen, a spirited young newspaper reporter who finds himself entangled in a web of suspense, secrets, and danger. In What Goes Up, Rosen's instincts lead him to a mystery that soars beyond expectations. This journey continues in Tickle Takedown, where the stakes get higher, the mysteries deeper, and just when you think you have him figured out, Max evolves a nose job, taking us into the mature and thrilling world of investigative journalism. 
Alan Wiener crafts a world filled with adventure, where every clue counts, every lead matters, and every page turns faster than the last. Dive into the Max Rosen Mysteries series today. Available now on Amazon.com. Max Rosen Mysteries, where intrigue and adventure await at the turn of every page. Brought to you by Alan Wiener. Writing stories that take you on a journey, one mystery at a time. Welcome back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Food Forward, Nourishing the World. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. Once again, I would like to thank Meg Bluth from the Brightfield Group, who gave us some very interesting information about what people look for on their food labels, and Dr. Deb Kennedy, who is truly an expert on food as medicine. I suggest that you look at some of the YouTube videos that she has up, as well as her book. Um, and I always like to remind people that we love to hear from you. We'd like to get comments, questions, suggestions, you name it. And you can uh, email me, Alan, A-L-L-E-N, at Food Forward Nourishing. I'm sorry, <laughs> Alan at FoodForwardRadio.com. You can also follow us on most social media platforms, except for LinkedIn, where they uh, hatcheted my um, uh, like 12-year or more account, trying to figure out how to get that back. Um, and, you know, we're often putting up videos, particularly on TikTok. I wanted to end the show with something that I found right before I went on the air. And this is from Wallet Hub. Wallet Hub has its top 20 vegan cities in the United States ranked in order. And from my hunch, it is based on the number of vegan restaurants that they have. Uh, in number five is Phoenix, Arizona, a place that we lived and know quite well. Also a burgeoning food scene. And one of the things that I noticed that uh, some of these have in common uh, is that they also have fantastic farmer's markets. And you wouldn't think that Phoenix would have a great farmer's market, but they have actually a couple. Um, one on Saturdays during season in Scottsdale, and then one uh, in North Phoenix in a church parking lot. And there's one particular farm, McClendon Farms, which has an amazing array of foods and uh, all kinds of snacks. Number four is San Diego. Again, a city with a great farmer's market uh, in their Hillcrest area. Um, it's been years since we've been there, but a pretty cool farmer's market. Number three is Orlando, Florida. Um, farmer's market-wise, there's you know a, a couple that we've run across. I think the reason that they make the list is because Disney, particularly Disney World, has really gone to great lengths to vegan up um, their their menus. It's it's uh, they've done a great job. Um, when we were there several years ago, they were just beginning to kind of break the ice. Number two, no surprise, Los Angeles, California. Um, some of the most innovative, and I think numbers-wise, they may not have a huge number, but the quality of the vegan restaurants in Los Angeles, um, Chef Kenny ha has a couple of restaurants we've had the pleasure of eating at. Um, they're not, they don't mimic 
food, like non-vegan food. They come up with their own creative recipes. They also have a, a couple of the most fantastic farmers markets in the United States. One in Santa Monica. It is, I think, Wednesday and Saturday. Uh, don't quote me on that, but it's a fantastic farmers market. The other um, is Hollywood in Holly uh, in the Hollywood area of Los Angeles. It goes for several several blocks, and they have um, great farmers market and you know great restaurants as well. Number one is Portland, Oregon. And despite some of the issues that are going on in Portland at the moment, this said that they have 52 vegan restaurants. I think that we had several years ago, I'm going to say 10 years ago, maybe more, one of the best vegan meals we've ever had at an Indian restaurant. They also have, and I can't say uh, anymore, um, maybe the best farmer's market in the United States at Portland State on Saturday. So that kind of wraps up the show for today. Please tune in. You can hear us live here on Voice America, always on demand on the Voice America show page and on any of your favorite platforms. So as I remind you always, eat hearty and eat healthy. Till next time, this is Alan Wiener. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Food Forward. We hope we've given you some insights into the wide world of food. Until we talk again, have a wonderful week.